We will continue our studies through Romans 8. This will be the third of four sermons going through the first 17 verses of Romans 8. But before we get to that, here's a story for you. Five and a half years ago, January 2012, there was a concert taking place. The New York City Symphony was playing Mahler's Ninth Symphony. And they reached a point where it was a very quiet and mellow part of the piece, a lot of string instruments, and suddenly the unexpected happened that ruined the rest of the evening. Someone's cell phone started to ring. The concert was interrupted by the marimba ringtone that threw the maestro off course. He later said, quote, It yanked him out of a trance-like state during the symphony's most intense, most sublime, most emotional place. The people were getting frustrated. They were shaking their heads. They were uncomfortable. And the cell phone continued to ring. The, the person leading the music up front tilted his head to the side so that the people will see that he is displeased with what is going on. And the cell phone continued to ring. A few minutes later, he did something that hasn't been done before. He stopped the music. He turned around and said, Whosoever phone this is, please turn it off so we can continue. Now the people were getting really frustrated. People were shuffling. People were making uh, comments. They started to, to yell. It, was, it just became a bit of a circus. Now the person whose phone it was, was a regular. And later on he confessed that he was paralyzed with fear. He just didn't know what to do. Finally, after quite some time, the cell phone stopped ringing. He turned around. He made sure, he made a comment and made sure this will not happen again. He calmed down and the music continued. That cell phone ring disrupted something so wonderful, so special, so beautiful. How horrible that is. How much worse when sin is not under control, when sin is not addressed or repented from, when sin disrupts Christian living. The main theme of Romans 8, as I have said, I believe is security. But such good news does not leave us the way that we are. It changes our lives entirely. The renewal of our mind, we saw, comes from a renewal of the heart, leads to a renewal of the heart, and that renewal brings a renewal of one's life. In the end, we are called to live our lives wholly before the Lord. In the golden booklet of the Christian life, John Calvin said the following, He says, holiness is not a merit by which we can attain communion with God. It's not something we work for, that we're good enough so that we can get more of God. Instead, he says, it is a gift, holiness is a gift which enables us to cling to him and to follow him. Holiness is a gift. Holiness we pursue not so that he can accept us, but so that we can enjoy fellowship with him, so that we can cling to him all the more. We must be serious and steadfast in our pursuit of holiness. We must be holy because he is holy. And our work of holiness is possible only because Christ, first and foremost, is working for our holiness. The Bible says that Jesus loves the church. That Jesus is the head of the church, the savior of the church. He gave himself for the church. Why? That he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, Christ gave himself for the church. Why? So that the church will be holy. That is his goal. That must be our calling as well. We were chosen before the foundation of the world that we should what? Be holy before him. We are saved to be holy. We are not what we were. And we are not yet what we will be. We saw that from the last sermon. But today, today we are called to walk in holiness. And this is what I want you to see about life and the Holy Spirit from today's passage. Here's the main point. That in Christ, we have life from the Spirit... And we have life by the Spirit. So we see in this passage that the Holy Spirit is the source of our life. But not only is the source, but he is also the means of this life. And here once more, we see this tension. That we have this life, but we're called to pursue this life. We are dead to sin, but we must put sin to death. We work, and the Lord works, and he works, and that enables us to work. We have his Spirit in us. And that enables and motivates and fuels us to live this life for him in holiness. If you don't have your Bible open already, I encourage you to open up to Romans 8. Let's look at verse 9 and keep it open and follow along. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But but if Christ is in you... Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In verses 9 to 11, we see life from the Spirit. And in verses 12 to 13, we see life by the Spirit. If we are going to live holy lives, this passage is essential for us. But you might be sitting here and you might be wondering, how how is this possible for you? Easier said than done. How can this passage help those who are tired and who are overwhelmed by the sins in their lives. Maybe you are reflecting on your past and you are going to say, I've tried. I've tried again and again and again to turn away from that sin and I have failed again and again and again. You might be coming to church this morning and you feel very close to giving up. You're fearful when it comes to holiness. You are tired of failing. You are just confused how Romans 8 can fit in your life. It's one thing to make a promise before God on the last night of camp. It's something else to be consistent. It's one thing to make a New Year's resolution that you will grow in your joy in the Lord this year, but it's, it's, it's hard when life is stressful. It's one thing to tell a close friend that you want to commit to growing in your prayer life, but, but it's very different and, and it's hard when things are just not getting better. It's one thing to forgive the person who hurt you, but it's a daily challenge to love them and to pray for them again and again. 
You are saved, but you struggle, and you fail, and you don't know what to do. Maybe you are thinking, I just don't have what it takes to overcome this. I just can't be more holy. Maybe you are accepting that this is who you are, and there's no room for growth. Maybe you are just tired of repenting, and you've tried and it was only short-lived. You pray, you seek counsel, you, you get accountability, you, you put disciplines and rules in your life, you set up reminders, you try and you try, but you just fall and you just don't know how to grow in holiness. Maybe you are very sure that your life is in Christ, like Romans 8, 1 to 4. And you are sure that your life is not defined by Romans 8, 7 and 8 anymore of the flesh. But you still struggle. Listen, the Holy Spirit who is in you will help you deal with your past failures. When you feel like you can't, when you realize that you just don't know how, He is there for you. Listen, the first truth that you need to rest in this morning is that the Spirit gives you life. So for those of us who are burnt out by past failures, who are sitting here quite hopeless, who feel like giving up, let's turn our attention to the Scriptures. You, however... You, however, you have to remember the past sermon, the mind of the flesh, the mind of the spirit. You're no longer in the flesh. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You are not what you were. You are no longer defined by the flesh. You are no longer ruled by the flesh. Friend in Christ, you are in the spirit. On his final days when Jesus was going to leave and he was speaking to the disciples about the Holy Spirit, I'm sure they were fearful about losing Jesus. What are we going to do without him? But he was trying to emphasize that there's someone better coming in the sense that the Spirit who is coming will be in them and with them forever. The Spirit is not a poor substitute to the person of Christ. He is completely sufficient for this life. He is enough for us to have communion with God, for us to experience His power that we need for everyday life. Believers are in the Spirit, belong to the Spirit, follow the leading of the Spirit. He, he continues and says, If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You are in Him. And more than that and beyond that, He is dwelling in you. He has entered your life, and now everything is completely different. He, he says this, Paul says this, a few different times in these two verses, in a few different ways. He says, you are in the Spirit, you have the Spirit of Christ. Three times he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And once he says that Christ is dwelling in you. Now, so the Spirit and Christ are not the same person, but they are both God, and they are both very much involved in your life, in your salvation, and in your sanctification. The Spirit of God is living in you, so that more and more Christ dwells in you, so that more and more you become more like Christ. If you are overcome and frustrated about past failures, but you are in Christ, this is where your life is headed. I am sure of it. This is where your story ends, that you will be like Christ. According to Romans 7, 17 and 20, you were dwelling in sin, but according to the good news of 
8, 1 to 4, you are now dwelling in the Spirit. He is in you. The word for dwelling comes from the word from home. So the Holy Spirit has come to make His home in you. He has come and has moved in. The Holy Spirit came, changed His address, unpacked His bags. He is dwelling in you forever. And He has no intention to leave. He has taken over permanent residence of your life. And that is a key hallmark, a great promise for the Christian life. And so... You have life. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And death spread to all men because all sinned. With a mindset of the flesh, there was death coming and only death according to verse 6. From the moment you begin to life, you also begin to die. With every breath that you take, you are closer to your last breath. While the outer self is moving closer to death, the inner self in Christ is moving closer and closer to life. And so the Christian faces both. We are not perfectly free from his flesh, but we are not perfectly saved either. That is where we are headed. We are still in the body, living these days with difficulties and stress, struggling to put the desires of the flesh to death. We confess, but we still struggle. We get accountability, but we're not perfect. We have these promises from God, but we battle every morning at the beginning of a new day. You repent, you want to grow, but you are not sure if you are good enough of a Christian. Maybe you think you should have been a better Christian by now. Maybe maybe there are several sins in your life right now that God is convicting you. Maybe there's a particular sin that you have been taking lightly. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit is poking at your heart right now, convicting you. Beloved, consider yourself alive in God. You have been brought from death to life already. The Spirit has given you life so that the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled already, as it says in verse 4. He has liberated you in verse 2. He has fulfilled the requirements of the law in verse 4. He leads to life in verse 5. He lives in you, verse 9. But more than that, He gives you new life after death, verse 11. He enables your holiness, verse 13. He leads God's children, verse 14. He gives you inner assurance of salvation, verse 15. And He gives a foretaste of this glorious inheritance in Christ, verse 17 and 23. Listen, you are not what you were. Your life was characterized by Romans 7, but no more. In Romans 7, especially in that second half where we see tension and struggle, the Holy Spirit is lacking. But now, now in Christ, you are in Romans 8. And just in this section, in the first 17 verses, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 15 times. That is your life now in Christ. But there is more. Like I've said before, in Christ there is always more. Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So you might be suffering now. 
But the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Maybe you are suffering now, and you are groaning, and you are lamenting, and you are aching, eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. 20th century author Frederick Buckner said the following. He says, what's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was next to life would scarcely fill a cup. I have to read that again. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death that ever was next to life would scarcely fill a cup. We are tired and weighed down by all the death around us, but all of that can be captured in a small cup in comparison with the fullness of life that is ours and is coming. And so with our jaws dropped, let us look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This resurrection that he speaks of was the working of the triune God. According to Acts 2, God raised up Jesus. According to John 10, Jesus had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. And here in Romans 8, we see it is the work of the Holy Spirit. This powerful, Jesus-resurrecting spirit is now at home in the lives of God's children. And because Jesus rose, you too shall rise if you are in Christ. The resurrection we have in Christ now is a glimpse and a guarantee of the resurrection we will have on that day. If you are in Christ, you have that life Now, but that is only a glimpse to the glorified body you will enjoy one day. We have this spiritual resurrection now when we are saved, but we will experience the physical resurrection on that final day. According to John 6, all those whom the Father gives to Jesus will be kept and none, none will be lost. On the last day, Jesus will raise them up. The next verse, he says, all those who look to and believe in Jesus more than that who eat and drink of Jesus they will surely be raised on the last day now we wait we wait for the hour when Christ returns when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life In Jesus, Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. That with with that same, sorry, transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So with the same power that Jesus takes all things and makes them subject to him, with that same power, that he rules with supremacy over all things, with that same power on that day, he will transform our lowly bodies. He will transform our weak bodies. Bodies in pain, in sickness, and agony of every sort. He will transform on that day. Our bodies were perishable, but they will be raised imperishable. They were in dishonor, but they will be raised in glory. 
They were in weakness, but they will be raised in power. They were a natural body, but they will be raised a spiritual body. Just as we were, like the first man of the earth and of dust, by faith we will be like the second man who is from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is a guarantee, my friends. We are sure of this, that he will bear his image one day. A few weeks ago, I read the following. Here's a quote for you. The author says, For if heaven is our fatherland, what is this earth but a place of exile? And this life but a journey through a strange land. If leaving this world means the entrance into real life, what else is this world but a grave? What else is dwelling on the sinful earth but being plunged in death? If deliverance from the body means complete liberty, what is this body but a prison? If to enjoy the presence of God is the peak of happiness... Is it not misery to be without it? Now, doesn't that help us change our perspective when we assume that this is life and we want this more than anything else? Friends, there's something better coming if you're in Christ. There is a fullness of life coming. Let us fix our hearts on that hope so that we can more steadfastly turn from sin and walk in holiness instead. That quote about life comes from John Calvin's A Golden Book, Booklet of the Christian Life. When I found out something about his life, that quote meant something very different for me. In 1540, he married a widow. 1541, they had a child. Two weeks later, he died. Over the next few years, they had two more children. Both died at birth or within a few weeks. 1549, his wife died. 1550, he writes this book. How does a man, a year after losing his wife, write a statement like that? He says that the daily blessings in life are by the goodness of God and ought to be received with thankfulness. But these blessings, he emphasizes, are not ultimate and they will not always be there. He, he takes a very realistic look at the hardships of life and he says we are being disciplined by God. That is to our advantage for then we will see life full of trouble and mis- misery and that these blessings are very much passing. Then we will aim for hope as we ought. This causes us to come to the conclusion that we can expect only strife in this life and we must raise our eyes to heaven, he says. Then he says the following quote, But it must be admitted that our heart is never seriously inclined to wish for and meditate on the future life unless it has first thoroughly learned to forsake the vanities of the present world. We need to let go of the vanities here. We we need to accept that life is miserable here. Once we've learned these lessons under the fatherly discipline of God, then we will not hold on to and crave the things of this world like we used to. Instead, then we will fix our eyes on heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, and we will live with hope. So, the struggle you are facing today can be part of God's good and wise discipline in your life 
to turn your attention to this coming hope. Be honest about the struggle. Grieve, lament, but don't sit in your frustration. Instead, fix your heart on this real life that you have been given and you will be given. And with that hope, let us run after holiness. I realize that in 1 Peter, he connects the two together, hope and holiness. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The next few verses, he says, be holy as he is holy. When we set our heart on this coming hope, that gives us the heart, the strength, the desire to run after holiness as well. How serious are you? in pursuing a holy life? Are you weighed down and tired by your past failures and repentance? Take heart. The Holy Spirit lives in you. But maybe when it comes to holiness, you are not someone who has strived and fought and struggled. Maybe you're not really repenting to begin with. Have you been casual with your sins? Have you forgotten the mindset of the flesh in verses 5 to 8? Have you forgotten the good news of Jesus in the first four verses? Have you forgotten the hopelessness of Romans 7? Have you forgotten the depth and the spread of sin in Romans 1, 2, and 3? Are we making excuses for our sins today? If you are struggling with past failure, you have hope for Christ is in you. But if you are right now continuously offering excuses for your sin, that's a different issue. Maybe you're a young man lacking in self-control in every area of your life, and your response is, God will forgive me anyway. Did you assume that God's mercy is that superficial and you can fool God? Maybe you are avoiding sharing the gospel with those around you and you are covering your disobedience with, well, let go and let God. Have you completely let go of your role in the Christian life? Have you tried to be that foolish in doing so? Have you not realized that the truths of the gospel leads to the commands of the gospel and we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Maybe your family is pointing out how quick-tempered and impatient you have become lately without any confession. Will you just casually say, well, I'm trying my best. Really? Have you resisted temptation to the point of shedding blood? Have you fled from sin knowing full well that the poison it really is? Have you longed for holiness like one gasping for air? Maybe you're ignoring God's instruction to read, meditate, memorize, and obey the scriptures. And you defend yourself by saying, well, I'm not as bad as that person. Oh, since when can holiness be compared like that? If you look down on the fellow believers next to you and so lift yourselves up, are you not really aware of the sins involved in just that judgmental attitude? Do you think that God grades on a curve? Your goal is not to be like them or to compare yourself to them or to put them down. Our goal is Christ, for he is our standard. The Holy Spirit will not let us sit in our past failures. The Holy Spirit will will not let us settle with excuses for today's sins. The Holy Spirit will help us when we feel that we cannot grow and we just don't want to grow. He is sufficient for the how and the why of the Christian life. 
As I said, life is from him. And life is by him. It is through him that we can have this life. We, we see this in the, in the last two verses for today's passage. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So then, brothers, therefore, brothers and sisters, in light of the first 11 verses, now we get to some application. Now we are not debtors to the flesh. The flesh? Were you not listening? That was dealt with a few verses ago. The, the, the flesh is dealt with already. We, we were in that, verses 7 and 8. We, we were hostile to God, unable, not wanting to submit to God, not pleasing to God. That was just leading to death. He repeats that for them to see how incredibly different life is right now. He, but he says, now you are not what you were. That does not define you anymore. You are no longer in debt to the flesh. You owe it nothing. You will get letters in the mail from sin. You owe me this much money. You take those letters and you throw it away. You are not in debt. You do not need to give it anything. In the past, you couldn't not sin. Now, you can not sin, right? In the past, you cannot not sin. We sinned and only sinned and couldn't do any different. But now, we can not sin. We have life and we are no longer in debt. We're no longer in debt because Jesus paid the price. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was condemned. He condemned sin in the flesh. And so, work with me here. There is therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are dead to sin. You are no longer enslaved to sin. You have been set free from sin. Romans 6 says that. The truth is that you have died to sin. So standing on that command, you must, on that truth, you follow the command that you must put it to death. You are dead to sin. That's truth, the truth. But now the command, you must put it to death. The you must is founded on the it is finished of Christ. He said it's finished. And because of that, all the more we sprint after holiness, or we should. From a place of much security and hope, look at the ending of verse 13. For if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What, how, and why? First, what? What do we do? Kill it. Start by seeing sin for what it really is. The problem starts when you give it some synonyms. It's not sin, it's my issue. It's not sin, it's a struggle. Let's call sin for what it is. See the spread of sin to all mankind and the resulting death to all. See sin that caused the Son of God to be slain on the cross. See the pain from sin, the foolish decisions, the ruin to marriages, the heartache to life. Affecting people around you and possibly the generation to come. See that sin must be punished endless days in hell. See sin for what it is. And be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen said that. 
In other words, declare war on your selfish desires and do not consider resuming negotiations with the enemy. Crucify your pride and do not consider withdrawing the nails from the wood. Like a person with a peanut allergy, abstaining from eating or even touching the food, which can lead to anaphylactic shock or death, in like manner, abstain. Like someone with a severe food allergy, abstain. Do not even come close to it. Ephesians 5, there must not be even a hint of sexual sin of any kind that is improper for God's holy people. Give a chokehold to the bitterness in your life. Do not give it any oxygen. Kill it, for there's no other way. Get rid of and do away with anything that is causing you to have a dull attitude towards the word of God. And instead, do whatever you can to stir up your affections for the Savior. The command of mortification is in the present tense. This is a command to be obeyed daily, in all circumstances, without rest. The battle does not pause. Your killing sin does not have office hours. It doesn't take a break on the weekends. Our killing of sin is ongoing daily in every circumstance with every issue that we encounter. The enemy fights, and so must we. With each encounter with sin, you will either accept the temptation or reject it. But every time you say yes to that sin, it becomes easier and easier and easier to fall. And you become more numb. But when you're confronted with that sin, if you say no, if you reject, if you put that to death, and again, and again, with each step, each opportunity, the sin becomes weaker and weaker. The monster is not being fed with sin. The monster becomes weaker and weaker. And eventually it will wither. And the stronger you get in your Christian life and the closer you walk with God. Take heart. Pursue holiness, but you cannot do this alone. When he says, puts to death, literally he is saying, you are all commanded by God together to continually put sin to death. Brothers and sisters, this is a community project. Our fight is not against each other. Our issue, the tension here, is not about this. It's us together fighting sin. Our issue is against the flesh. And so we must hold hands and come together. In unity, we must confess and repent from our sins, for there is no other way. And how is this possible? This is possible only by the Spirit. As your home appliances cannot function on their own unless they are plugged in to electricity, we, we cannot unless we are plugged into the Spirit. It's by the Spirit that we are convicted of sin and we see how horrible it is. By the Spirit who opens our eyes to see the fullness of Christ and all that He has done John Owen said his blood is the great sovereign remedy for the sin-sick souls. The Spirit opens our eyes to see that. By the Spirit, he has given a new life to you. By the Spirit, who helps you wait expectantly for Christ to come. By the Spirit, who powerfully raised Jesus, is powerfully working in your life for your godliness. By the Spirit, who is the author and finisher of your sanctification. By the Spirit who produces the fruit of Christ-likeness in you, no longer the deeds of the flesh. 
by the Spirit who gives you the discipline to turn from evil and to desire communion with God. By the Spirit who opens your eyes and hearts so you can see the greatness and beauty of Christ. By the Spirit of God. Through the Word of God. By the grace of God. Our hearts are filled with wonder and delight. To the point that it dulls the attractiveness of sin. It evicts the remaining sin. It chokes the tempting words of sin. And it does away with the fake promises of sin. It is by the Spirit that we are able to experience this. And why? Why? So that you can have life. Romans 5 and 6 made it clear over and over that we have this life already. We have the essence of this life already. But verse 13 promises the vigor and the comfort and the joy of this life. More and more, when we kill sin, more and more we will enjoy this real and daily experience of life before Christ. That is the why of killing sin. When sin is so easy and so tempting and it seems so nice, we kill it because Christ, Christ is worth it. His glory is worth it. And our communion with Him is far greater than we can imagine. And so God, God is the reason. God is the reason, all our reasons. In Christ, we are a community that is alive with the indwelling of the Spirit. And we are called to be holy, to enjoy greater intimacy with God. We do this to know God, to be closer with God, to behold the beauty of God. Friends, don't forget this. If you are overcome by your failures of the past, remember the life in the Spirit. And if you find yourself making excuses, today is the day to confess and repent, and by the Spirit to kill sin, so that you can enjoy life in Christ instead. 